Hey folks, and tonight's episode is brought to you by YesPleaseVintage.com. If you're in the States and a fan of vintage and upcycled housewares and clothing, give YesPleaseVintage.com a check for clothing, jewelry, homeware, and some really awesome finds. So go check them out now at YesPleaseVintage.com. And currently, if you spend over $60, you get free shipping on all orders. Hello and welcome to Asian Cinema Film Club. This is episode 117. I'm your host as always, Edward Jones, and joining me of course is my co-host, the Professor, Mr. Stephen Palmer. Hello everybody. Tonight we look at Zhang Zimu's Shadow, the much overlooked follow-up to his uh, original trilogy of films which caused him to be such a breakout sensation in the West. Um, A story of Greys and battle umbrellas. But before we get into that, it's uh, time to ask what you've been watching. And Stephen, since the last episode, what has been holding your attention, if anything? Okay, well, it's been a busy week or two since we last recorded, and I've really struggled to watch things. However, you know, I have to. We have to. We have to suffer, don't we, for the for the show? So I have managed to fit a couple of things in. Actually, um, kind of interesting things. Um, one, I would say, is on the edge of maybe not quite being for this show, but I'll make a good argument for it. And the other one is a little documentary I watched. So I'll start with the big ticket one, which is I watched. Um, just trying to think of the director. Bernardo Bertolucci's The Last Emperor. Okay. Right. Which is a film I have meant to watch clearly for something like 38 years. <laughs> never, never got round to it. Um, it's surprising you didn't watch it because it was such a cultural touchstone for the longest time when it came out. Well, It was like, seemed sure. to be everywhere. Uh, it, you, you always had that visual of the child emperor. Um, mm. Which is only a small bit of that film as well. Abso- so. Absolutely. So that was that was the shocking bit. I mean, yeah, this is a film that won like nine Oscars. Um, now has a bit of a maybe a damaged reputation because it's one of those films that people say, meh, it was Oscar bait. And, you know, it's just one of those films that's going to win Oscars. And maybe, yeah, I, 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 interesting reading contemporary reviews and current reviews how people seem to have soured on it a little oh there's definitely um, worse films that have been made for oscar bait such as like you know moonlight for example crash being another example oh um, i think i think i think we could think of many of them um you tell me I, why la la land didn't win the oscar over moonlight that doesn't have to do with the fact that you know they needed something to appeal to two groups at the time so yeah it was um so yeah, so so the setup. If anybody else in the world hasn't seen it, um, it's the story of um, Pu Yi, who was the last. Well, as the title says, he was the last emperor of let's just call it Imperial China. Um, so was basically put into power by the Dowager Empress Dowager. Um, 
So he was like her cousin or something like that. But he was a young three-year-old child. Um, and as you rightly say, quite a lot of the famous imagery from this film, the opening act, is about this young little bratty child, and we're going to use that phrase a lot, running around the Forbidden City in in what is now Beijing, um, served upon by hundreds of eunuchs and 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 people that don't know women like are allowed in there at night and he's just treated like a like a like a god king um however his ascension to the throne pretty much comes at the same time as the um sort of the revolution the first revolution in china um so when the Sun took over, well, some sort of revolutionary thoughts took over, um, and we entered that warlord period. So he was never allowed to leave the Forbidden City. He was emperor only within those four walls, yet still thought of, I think, quite highly by the people at large, but the world changed. He then, the world changed again um, during the uh, sort of the Japanese occupation of China. Um, and, and actually the story... Once we get past that first act, it it becomes a more modern story of this guy who's this, this petulant little bratty guy mm. who is trying to hold on to his birthright whilst the world gets more modern, um, whilst he's trying to sort of appease the Japanese oppressors, but his sort of is the way he thinks is much more in line with with Japanese thinking even though they look down on him so he sort of becomes the ruler of a puppet the puppet state of Manchuria um, during the Japanese occupation and then as the film ends we have Mao's communist takeover of China and so we have in effect a history of 20 the first half of 20th century China viewed through the eyes of this this person that was brought up in really unusual circumstances um it's you know the director is one of the great directors this italian director bernardo bertolucci it's it's this glorious opulent looking movie yes it's probably at its best visually in that first act when it's in the forbidden city but i think well, you know that I love 1920s Shanghai set movies, so there's a good portion like that. I like that whole that that sort of that period of history is a favourite of mine. So it was a it was appealing a lot to me. Um, Peter O'Toole turns up for a large section of the movie as a British um, ambassador, who ended up being like a tutor and friend to Puyi, and gives us a few other little um, insights into what was going on at the time. But it's yeah, it's 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 a fairly long. I only watched the the theatrical version, which is well over two hours. There is a, it's not a director's cut. That it's like a TV cut, which goes on for nearly three hours, which is designed to be shown in two halves on TV on consecutive nights. I I haven't gone that. But it's an Arrow. It's an Arrow Blu-ray. Lots of lovely extras. I haven't really dived into them. But um, yeah, I really enjoyed it but i think it was because it was ticking a lot of my boxes um and then i had to go off and do a load of reading on wikipedia and other historical sites to 
to try and understand. I've had some amazing stuff like the modern Chinese tourist um, websites really do like to spin a lot of mystery around this guy. Um, the thing I think it gets most criticised for contempt nowadays is that um, everyone speaks English. So I th- there is a lot of people in the film for whom English I don't think is even their fourth language. Um, and there's a lot of people putting on Chinese people speaking as English language. There's people like Joan Chen are in the film who we know can speak perfectly good English um, from her time in things like um, Twin Peaks. Um, John Loney can also speak the who who plays the sort of the grown up emperor can speak very good. So that's all a bit weird why everyone's talking like that. I guess if it had been a subtitled film, we would have thought, oh, that wouldn't have been. Um, that wouldn't have been acceptable to the uh, to the population, but there is something a bit weird about it. Um, it would be a few more years yet when something like Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon would um, come and win Oscars with subtitles. But I really enjoyed it. You've watched it as well. Um, I think we've spoken about it behind the scenes. Um, so yeah, that that was good, um, and does make me think again. I think there's this sort of section of movies that we could talk about. Um, maybe that are they Asian cinema or are they something else? And this, this sort of clearly goes in that pile. The other thing I watched was a documentary um, called BNK 48 One Take. I can't remember if you've seen it before. It's on It's on Netflix or it was on Netflix. It might not be anymore, actually. Um, so we have spoken before, I am sure, about AKB 48, one of the... Um, biggest bands of all time apparently um so me and my youngest daughter found out the other day when we were looking at another question um which made me remember i had this movie to watch um so akb48 are this japanese idol band and famously there were 48 members that's not quite true but there are and they're based in akanahabara in in Tokyo but over the years they've set up these other branches in other Japanese cities and have had international spin-offs in Indonesia and and in this one particularly um, BNK48 is set it's Thai in Thailand in Bangkok um, so it's this kind of really manufactured band these young girls join the band and the idea is it's really about it started off where they would sing their songs in this in this dedicated theater so the so akb for it would sing their songs in this dedicated theater in, in akinahabara akinahabara and um and what would happen is a it was easy for their fans to go and see them and b they do like these meet and greets which is quite a common thing now when japanese and and, and other asian bands come to the uk like i've seen scandal a couple of times and they'll sell these meet and greet packages but it's this kind of thing where you can touch the idols i mean i mean like shake their hands not literally touch them up um and as time has progressed yes they've been incredibly successful it's incredibly manufactured obviously um but they've gone and done there's loads of documentaries i'm pretty sure you've watched one of the akb 48 documentaries we've talked about it before and if you haven't Maybe I did. So I've watched a few of them. So they have these documentaries that support them. They have... Um, and, and obviously in the growth of social media, that's um, 
that's also during these outreach. And what will happen is, let's just say there's 48 members in each band or sub-band. It's probably nearer 32, but whatever. That Basically, when you sell a single or do the video, they've decided that 16 is probably the most they can fit on a cover <laughs> or in a video. So they have these these tournaments, basically, where you vote as a fan for the most the girl that you want to be in the to, to be the leader to be the best so it's, it's it's utterly around popularity and this is like i say this is the second um documentary about bnk 48 the one before was called girls don't cry which is actually directed by narapol the guy that directed mary is happy mary is happy okay which was what i was looking for but i got this one instead which is is fine um so it follows the sort the, the girls sort of the, the the first generation and the second generation and of, of these girls who are fighting up for this election to be the leads for their sixth single. Um, now, actually, there's very little singing and dancing in this. It's I would say, although it's clearly meant to be a puff piece, it's one of the saddest things I've ever watched. Because you have these young girls, and, and it's really hard to tell how old they are. I think they're in their early 20s, most of them. But you know how Thai girls can look. I, I wouldn't know if half of them were 14 or 36. It's quite hard to tell. And they, they're they not, they're just nice girls, most sort of girl next door types. And they, they, they it's, it's the way they're fully aware that they're being utterly manipulated, the way that this competition base for the how the band works it's utterly soul destroying um but they obviously they have the whole can do it's all coming from japan this this kind of manipulated thing if we think that the korean pop industry has got problems this feels even worse there's moments in this film where some of the girls sort of do some acting lessons and in the acting lessons they get to write little little skits if you like that they might do on their own and, and together and all the ones they show are basically saying oh i don't feel good social media is really killing me people really put lots of pressure on me and 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 then all the all the sort of the talking head bits all feel a bit like that as well and the pressure's getting to them and they're crying and they have this horrible scenario where they get quite friendly with their fellow bandmates and there are little cliques and friendships grow. And then this competition side happens. And it was really sad. Even the girl that wins, that comes first in this... And there's thousands of people in this stadium, by the way, <laughs> while this voting thing's going on. She sort of turns around in tears. And so she sort of says, thank you for my fans for voting for me, blah, blah, blah. But she turns around and there's 31 other girls behind her. And she turns around to them and she sort of says something along the lines of, well are you happy for me and she's in tears because she doesn't know who her friends are anymore she doesn't know doesn't really know how to act because some people are not going to be in this in this video and it's going to affect their career some people might actually be relegated to other things and 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 then some of them get up like three or four of them get because they're her best friends but some of them don't know whether they do. and it's tragic mate um i'm not saying it's the deepest documentary in the world but I, I kind of enjoyed it. But what I really want to do is go back and watch Girls 
don't cry because i think that's a little more interesting as a documentary but um but yeah that that's what i've been watching cool how about yourself I've seen two things. <laughs> um, I actually, because this week I stumbled into a weird um, hole on Netflix where um, I binged the whole of um, How to Be a Cult Leader, which is on Netflix and uh, narrated by Peter Dinklage. He's got a very nice uh, narration voice, it turns out. As uh, he, as I said, he narrates the this series. There was a series before it uh, called "How to Be a Dictator," which I haven't watched, and I should really get onto because it obviously talks about uh, Kim Jong Un and his family. But uh, the one standout part of this uh, is the fact that the final episode covers the Moonies, um, who are probably best known as that cult to have the mass weddings over in like uh, Madison Square Garden where uh, the leader married uh, thousands of people off at the same time that he's personally paired together. Yeah, so it's, it's funny, the Moonies, because when I was growing up, the Moonies were a thing. Obviously, it's a bit racist calling them Moonies, because basically the, the leader's something Moon, isn't he? Dr. Moon. Yes. Or something like that. It was him and, and his wife that uh, ran this, this cult. Yeah, but these, these sort of mass weddings, in, firstly in Korea, and then it spread... It certainly spread to America, didn't it? Um, I'm not sure if it yeah, came, it came over to, to Britain UK. as well. And um... yeah, but it was I would say in the sort of 80s, early 80s, before 1988, before the 88 Olympic Games, that was probably the only thing any of us had ever heard of from Korea. <laughs> it wouldn't I, be I, surprising I, actually because it was a very sort of isolated state. Um, mm, indeed, was, and it was only because of the cultural department really pushing South Korea's. Um, cultural program that's that we had the explosion of K-pop and films and everything else that sort of like come out really of the really since like the two thousands really. And of course, our American friends are saying, "What about the Korean War?" But I, other than <laughs> not really much of a cultural uh, input export, is uh, it? Well, ma- other than Mash, I don't think the Korean War is quite as indented on the British psyche. I say even maybe Vietnam is. Well, when we talked um, about Brotherhood, we talked about how overlooked, like cinematically, the Korean War is. Mm. Um, it's sort of like this one of those grey areas of history where you know, oh, got plenty of films about the First World and Second War and Vietnam War, uh, even like the Gulf conflicts. It's uh, but no, the Korean War is always like one of those overlooked uh, conflicts. <laughs> Anyway, I've completely diverted but, you. No, the, <laughs> the interesting thing that really got me about this uh, one is that obviously the the whole series it basically outlines. It's a very much a snapshot of each of these courts. So it's like does Manson and it does like um, Jonestown and the basically the the main sort of courts. But I think if you wanted something a little deeper than this, an introduction, then you'd have to go off and find a document specifically about these courts. So. Because only half an hour long episodes, it does kind of skim over it. The part that really interests me the most about when it came to the moons, however, was the fact that he'd set it up so that he would be like this immortal presence and that his youngest son and his wife were going to basically take over in the result to impass him. And what happened instead was a whole Game of Thrones struggle for the, the throne, really, as his youngest son formed his own cult that basically worship the second amendment so they have a lot of uh ceremonies where they're brandishing ak uh 
like um, you know, the assault weapons. His eldest son and his wife um, are still running the 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 cult itself. But yeah, it just goes to show that you have all these great plans in life, but when you die, it's every man for himself when it comes to being cult leader. Yeah, I, I so many of these stories end like that, don't they? <laughs> when when there's money involved and power invested in it, it, it things will never go to plan. No. Um, on another weird subgroup of things, I, and it's another Netflix documentary here, um, and this is um, about esports. I don't know if you follow esports at all. I don't follow esports, but I am aware. I I am. I have people that work with and for me who are very keen on esports and do try and tell me about it but yeah it just does nothing yeah. for me either i i think that uh esport competitors are some of the worst people that you have to encounter if you work in the field of video games i'll tell you that much um but no it's good the do- it's a documentary called free to play it's uh, released in 2014 and it is on netflix this is a documentary put out by valve um and it follows the competition for Dota 2, which is another of these like um, mass multiplayer games, kind of like League of Legends style game. And follows this competition where they put up a, a price pot of a million dollars. And it follows these different uh, video game players as they sort of prepare for it. What it obviously relates to in our side of things is the fact that you have uh, all the sort of main teams that are from like Korea and China. And they mention that during the World Cup, the to motivate the Korean team, that they actually brought in the top StarCraft esports team to help motivate them because they're a bigger celebrity over there than the actual you know, traditional sporting teams. But as I said, if you're not a fan of esports, I don't think this is really going to swing you over. Um, it's kind of amusing, really, just to see the Chinese teams who come in all, like, real cocksure themselves because they live in these training houses. So, like, for 17 hours a day, all they do is just, like, play video games and they eat and sleep together. They're just in these big training houses. And they're like, oh, yeah, the because we're like the one nation teams and Chinese teams are just like have nothing to fear. We're very intimidating. We can't be beaten. And both of them get smashed in this tournament. And it's funny seeing them like come in all cockshot and then like try and make excuses for why they've lost to multi-nation teams. Like the team that ended up winning it called Navi, the multi-nation team. And they're from various parts of the world. And they all sort of like train remotely. And their team captain, he didn't actually couldn't afford a, a desk. He's got this desk which uh, he's got from like it was being thrown out of a fresh shop or something. And his monitor is basically like an old uh, four eight six monitor that he's got stacked up on magazines. And it says that with the prize money, he finally bought a new desk. <laughs> oh dear! I, I so I I've seen stuff about these esports things before i mean it just always reminds me of the spice girls they basically sort of just get these people and they make them all live together don't they and it does not seem a fun life at all it worries me like the the sort of damage you do to yourself to just do anything for like 
16 odd hours again they're like saying that you know your cutoff point really is like when you're 24 because after that your reaction speed starts slowing down so you really these a lot of these kids are like coming in and there's one of the guys he's supposed to be sitting like his final exams but he skips two of his exams just to go and play in this tournament um and he ends up losing as well which is worse still so he ends up having to not only redo the last semester of his school uh, but he also has to know the fact that he put everything on the line and still lost. But uh, it's fun, just as I said, just in the the fact that these guys are like seen as like such huge celebrities, especially as I said in places like Korea and China, where they have these huge um, esports and teams, and it's like viewed as a like a proper sport. It's only sort of short of it because it's not um, participated in the Olympics. Yeah, I I mean, it's always, it, it's again, it's one of those things that almost, I think it almost got its start in Korea. Was it StarCraft? Yeah, StarCraft's is the that, one is that which the... uh, you have like those horror stories of like people neglecting their kids because they're just like mm. so adult on playing StarCraft. But because, I think I've talked about this before, because South Korea, because of the way it sort of entered the world in or around the the time modernized around the Olympic Games, they had like fiber internet before any other country really thought about it, and obviously that's why you've got these companies like Samsung and Hyundai and Kia who've become these massive international brands. But they adopted the internet and high speed internet so much earlier than us. So while we were having little fucking LAN parties taking our Amigas around to each other's houses or lap-link cables on PCs. They were developing these sort of concepts of online gaming and multiplayer gaming as a cultural phenomenon so long before us. But, yeah, like I said, there's a guy that works for me. He went down to London. He lives up north. And he went down to London a couple of months ago to see some big tournament. And I had... I hadn't realised how big it was. He was telling me about it and showing me photos of it. I mean, they go to these arenas, there's big screens everywhere. These these people are... He was excited because he met one of these players and said hello to them. And I thought, I... It's... Sometimes I do feel very old. Yeah. And that was that was a moment. It's sort of like, if you I get Twitch, really then you probably, you probably appreciate esports. But the idea of just watching people play games that you can play yourself just has never held any interest to me in the slightest so um and it also just seems like a lot of time when you go on twitch it just seems like you know camming but more clothed it's like who who really who really plays games in their underwear in front of a camera should i say so well i think yeah so i i am aware of twitch so that that obviously I'm into my retro games, so there is some there is some crossover between sort of the retro computing YouTube scene and Twitch. Um, but there also is this huge crossover between Twitch and OnlyFans, and there's <laughs> a huge <laughs> and and so so Twitch is a world I've never really I've watched a couple of streams. I think you're right. Um, also, it's quite big in the political commentary world as well. But yeah, there will be people like Destiny who sit there playing these games while spouting off their thoughts on politics and things like that. So I've I've dabbled. I do not understand why you do it. Youngest daughter, um, 
few years ago was really into Minecraft and would watch people play Minecraft for hours on end when she literally had it <laughs> and and could have played it for hours on end and there was a, there's a there's a yeah it's it's a, it's a very strange thing but then I guess I mean you're, you're you're more of a gamer than I am for sure um but yeah the idea of just watching someone play a game I find and plus it gives us people like bizarre. ninja like yeah like, do we really need this sort of burden on society we've got there's something where that someone like him can be like be paid like a multi-million dollar contract for just sitting in his ninja pad drinking energy drinks and playing Fortnite. On the other hand, if we had the opportunity to become millionaires for playing Fortnite and drinking Red Bull or whatever it is, I think we would. Yeah, it's all about it. I think that's, that's, that's the whole goal of, of doing anything, isn't it? Just to get to the point where you can be a big fat sellout. Yeah, absolutely. Still, because we're not However, big fat if anyone, sellouts. However, if anyone wants us to do an Asian Cinema Film Club on Twitch... <laughs> oh my God, I don't even think about the technical logistics, though. Oh, I think I don't, I don't. I have no idea, but I also know no one wants to see us in our pants talking about Asian cinema. No. Or if they do, <laughs> let's let's go fund me it. <laughs> anyway, um, I did also watch um, a 1978 slice of Kung Fu Weird that I was considering bringing to the show just because I thought it may have like a bit of a battle weird vibe to it, but unfortunately, it didn't really have enough there to sort of like make for a fun episode I didn't think but I think it's still worth noting and checking out if you are a fan of your Kung Fu Weird and that's Shaolin Invincibles uh, directed by Hu Chang unless it's released in 1978 now there is a version from Wu-Tang Collection that is available on YouTube which is a really nice print or you can watch it on Plex um, which seems to be the print which is like kicked down the stairs and stored badly for a few thousand years so the choice is yours really um, but basically it follows two sword welding sisters who seek revenge against the evil uh, tyrant who murdered their family and along the way they battle these two priests that uh, have got st- stupidly large tongs and even better a pair of kung fu gorillas oh well I can see why you wanted to bring it to the show we do love a kung fu gorilla yeah. I mean it also has Carter <laughs> Wong who played Thunder in Big Trouble in Little China Okay, um, yeah, there's yeah. Chia Ling in it um, and uh, Doris Lunk mm-hmm. um, who is just incredibly adorable in this movie I'm just going to say that much about her, she's fantastic and the film itself I mean as I said the fighting bits are really good but the plot is pretty nonsensical there's also a prisoner who's got like a um, um, like a, a, a like a damaged face so his eye is like kind of like sticking out if you do you remember on um always sunny in philadelphia where uh liam o'poyle uh has that fake eye yeah yep, that's the mean. effect they have in this movie right okay <laughs> so as i say it's a it's a fun like random watch and i mean certainly the gorilla suits they have in this one are just like real bargain basement gorilla suits that they have these two stuntmen running. I mean, it's not like, you know, in Battle Wizard, where they actually had to train the gorilla. I mean, if you watch the Criterion set for Battle Wizard, you can see the whole process it went through with training that gorilla to learn Kung Fu and stuff. So, um, 
<laughs> but yeah, this as I said, this one's it's it's like old kung fu weird movies. It's really bizarre and bad, but at the same time, strangely watchable. And the fact, as I said, you've got these two kung fu gorillas makes you kind of want to watch it just for the sake that you've seen a movie where um, two sword world and sisters battle a pair of kung fu gorillas. But um, as I said, it is available on YouTube and it's available on Plex, so uh, you can watch it uh, with these. But um, yeah, I feel as I said, I think it's uh, it's got curiosity value to say the least. Just remind me what it's called it's again. It's called Shaolin Invincibles, which okay. is not to be confused with Invincible Shaolin, which is uh, the Venom yeah. Mob movie. Yeah. But um, I have posted it up on our Facebook page, so um, if you can go and uh, check it out there. We're also currently compiling our list for the 31 Days of Halloween this year, which is obviously going to be Asian Horror, so please do keep sending your recommendations through. You can send it through on Facebook or Instagram or email across at uh, acfilmclub at yahoo.com. Um, we'd certainly love to uh, hear your recommendations. And as I said, we've had some really interesting ones through so far. I've got a lot of stuff that's been sitting on the watch list that I've just thrown into the list. We've got some old school anime in there. We've got some splatter in there. It's uh, going to be a real uh, fun time. And we also have our pick uh, for this year's this year's uh, horror movie, which um, I can tell you now if you want, or you can have it as a surprise, Stephen. I don't know what... Go on in, tell us now. Now you've said it. Okay. Well, we're going to be looking at Hido Nakada's Dark Water from 2002 oh. as our featured uh, pick for this year. Uh, but obviously we Lovely. are going to be having the weekly updates as well. So you'll be able to see all the weird and wonderful stuff. And we're also posting up on the Facebook and the Instagram and the Twitch as well. So they're, sorry, not the Twitch, the Freds as well. So. <laughs> um, but yeah, as I said, I've got a lot of stuff that you've recommended me for things like strange circus yep uh which i've never seen so i'm excited to see that and like gozu um oh there's a lot of love for goes there was a lot of love for gozu in the um in the facebook group wasn't there, there is and then we got you know some weirder stuff in here like bloody chainsaw girl or uh new glue lama z which is uh, okay. a perfect lily who merges with a teddy bear to fight zombies and save the world. I've also okay. got Mika Droid Robo Kill beneath Disco Club Layla as well, which is kind of like a Terminator ripoff. Gotcha. Um, and then we've got things like Hiroko the Zombie and Tokyo Gore Police, Robo Geisha, Uzumaki. It's, we try to keep it as mixed as possible. Just to, because I say, if you do anything for 31 days, you can't just like sit with like one type of thing it's good to mix it up so we've uh as i said we've had some fun ideas and if you've got something that you think we should be included in our 31 days of horror then uh, please do shoot across your ideas as well so on that note it's uh time to get into our feature presentation so we're going to fight the projector for tonight's selection which is shadow So 
tonight we're looking at Shadow from 2018. Uh, this is a art house kung fu movie directed by Zhang Yumo. Zhang, Zhang Yumo, is that right? Yeah, I yeah. Think directed that's right. by Zhang Yumo, um, and this is uh, set in a kingdom where a military commander has secretly been uh, training his identical twin to pull a coup on the king who has united two of the three kingdoms in order to maintain his grasp on the immediate area um and now with the a duel set up between the one of his head soldiers and a the head soldier of the rival kingdom it looks to the bastard looks to be upset Stephen, has you seen Shadow before, or is this a first-time watch? Um, I hadn't seen it before. I've got to be honest, I'm not a huge fan of Zhang Yimou's films as a whole. I find them... So he's done... He did, like, Hero, didn't he? And... Crikey, what else we did? We uh, did Hero, House of the Flying Daggers, and uh, Castle right. the and Golden we, Flower. And, um, yeah, which is obviously we've covered before, yep. and I'm sure I've said the same things before. That I think he's um, well, there's a whole set of films like Red Sorghum and Raise the Red Lantern, which are all these sort of classics in the past. But he's had these films which are, I don't know, sort of those three films in particular, especially Hero and House of Flying Daggers, came out of this. They got international success on the back of um. The second time tonight, I'm going to mention that film by Ang Lee um, that won all the Oscars, and I've forgotten its name, even though I said it before. Oh, Crouching um, Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Crouching, Crouching Tiger. Yeah, it, it got, it got on. It, it came sort of international reports that. I just think they're very beautiful things, but I never really connect with them. And I hadn't seen this before, but I did have it on um, DVD. I must have picked it up, you know. It was on sale or something, or as a, a set of other things. I thought, oh, I like like the idea of that. And you've spoken about it before. Yeah, it's on um, our uh, top two hundred. And if I tell you, I fell asleep watching it. This is not going to sound very good. <laughs> <laughs> However, I did then retry watching it again, and actually i ended up quite enjoying it <laughs> but there is it's a film for me of two halves there's a talky first half which is a lot of exposition and i'll he's not his identical twin he's just a guy that happens to look like him so the the, the concept is that throughout history people have had these shadows which have done some stuff for them <laughs> and so many I guess the idea is that many great people in history have had these looky-likes <laughs> that have um, that have covered for them and enabled them to maybe to do some of you know their, their legend is created on the acts of more than one person. So yeah, he's not related to him because the whole point about the mother isn't there later that, that later on. But yeah, it's kind of interesting, and I will say I ended up loving the visual styling. And we haven't talked about it yet. But to start with, I was finding it a bit hard to really connect with it. But it ended up winning me over. 
there we go. Let's just leave it at that. Yeah, I mean, certainly when we look at his, his films, especially in the EC web for this whole period where his films were based around colour. So especially with that the Hero trilogy, there was a lot, real emphasis on the use of colour. And then when he comes over to the States and does things such as like Flowers of War and the Great Wall, the, the colour element sort of like was pushed more to the background. So when he comes returns to... Uh, returns to the east and this is obviously his first film that he makes coming back the colour element is really pushed to the forefront this time it's blacks and greys before we'd seen lots of like when you look at Hero all the different colour colours are used for the different versions of the story being told House of uh, Flying Daggers had the use of greens, whites uh, for the second half of the film. And then we had those sort of regal golds that uh, were really sort of at the forefront for Curse of the Golden Flower. And certainly with this one, it's as it's really sort of strips it down. And as I said, because it's all in the sort of like inky greys and blacks, it really sort of matches the mood of this, um, of the current sort of like political climate where you have this key city of uh, Jingzhou, which is ba- basically hinging on a duel being carried out by the brilliant commander Zhu, uh, who lost a duel to the seemingly unbeatable Yang Kang, um, which has put the king of uh, Pei in sort of this real sort of difficult position because, um, again, the commander has challenged his opponent again to this duel without checking with the king first. And sort of like the fate of this city rests on the outcome of this duel but as we mentioned already Commander Zhu isn't who he says he is because he's uh, been training his shadow to participate in this and within that sort of first half you can we there is a real sort of leaning into the political thing because the king of pay is really just more a king in title only he's more concerned with holding on to his title and his status and really about ruling his empire and he just likes to sit in his court and basically boss people around um where as the commander is really sort of focused on reclaiming this city because that's where his mother um is located and the the first half of this film is really about trying to find a way that he can beat Yang Kang's style because as I said he's uses this big heavy saber um, and in the end they discover that you know it's got to basically be like a yin and yang he has to find a style that counters the style that uh, his opponent is using which makes for some really interesting visuals especially in sort of like the training montages where the training against the with the the sort of like bow staff against the umbrella which will by the time we get into the finale become the really awesome battle umbrella um which if you're a fan of Mortal Kombat will seem real reminiscent of uh, Katana's fan blades yeah uh, the the weapon stuff actually is where it kind of got interesting and that, that but the bit I fell asleep was just before all that started um so he's also got um so um ZU has a wife um Zhao Ai who's played by the always wonderful Sun Sun Lee so it was nice to see her um she's quite an interesting visually person but she's also a great actress um who basically gives him the idea and she sort of says 
she's expressing. I mean, the whole yin and yang thing, the black and white, the masculine versus the feminine, the land versus the water. This is a film that loves its water, and and that and so umbrellas obviously a protection against water, but she gives them the idea because and it's more feminine moves, and I thought that was all very interesting. But actually, when it actually, so we have these sort of. He does these kind of one-on-one battles, doesn't he, in his secret little cave, which he's got built as a giant yin and yang symbol. You know, the the whole circle with the two opposing black and yeah. whites. And um, it's a very famous bit of... I think it's just called the yin and yang symbol, it's a, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's yang. In, <laughs> in Chinese philosophy, I mean, yin is uh, associated more with uh, femininity and darkness, water. Yang is light, fire, masculinity. But it's the two, yeah. essentially the two sides of the of the coin that are in perfect balance of each other. That That's right. And so there is this, there's a load of lovely imagery. And the black and white, it's not shot in black and white. It's just everyone's wearing black and white and all the set dressing is black and white and loads of the action happens outside in a dark storm. So it oh, just yeah. gives the it impression of It rains all the time. <laughs> Apart from occasionally during the war, you, you get red, but you don't get Shaw Brothers ketchup red. You get soaked material in blood red you know if you've ever i don't know you've ever really badly cut yourself and you've had some bandaging on it and the blood seeps into that bandage that's that it's that kind of dead red and that's the only other color in the film it's meant to i believe look like um sort of ink drawings sort of old chinese ink drawings and that's it and it is amazing and I can't believe there isn't a UK Blu-ray of this because this film is made to be in high definition and, um, uh, you know, it's it's a glorious looking thing. A lot of it is clearly CGI, but a lot of it isn't. A lot of it is just the costuming. Um, it actually, I think it was literally filmed outside in rain. Yeah, yeah, he so, didn't. Uh, they didn't have like rain machines. They were just basically shooting the majority of the movie on real rainy days they were controlling the color physically um to um to sort of like fade out the excess color there was no use of the computer here at all and as you mentioned already i mean it was this style of ink painting that uh yumo had wanted to be he wanted to try for several years previously but never quite been able to nail it down and with shadow it was sort of like him finally figuring out how to do it and I think as when you look at it, it is you can see the connection between how he shoots this film and those uh, the style of ink painting and the fact that everything looks like it's been painted in ink. It's all it doesn't look dirty, but as I said, it's got that so the the, the style is definitely there for like ink paintings that you can see in like how everything's all like set dressed and uh, and set up and. While the film is certainly talking that first half, I think it more than makes up for it once we get into the, the second half where we have the siege of the the city. Because the jewel is basically just a cover for the the hundred convicts that have been exiled uh, by the King of Pei 
Um, and these they basically round them up and train them to be this army that's going to sneak in because they're the sort of fighting force that turns up with their own floating platform. It's If you play like a lot of Soul Calibur and stuff, you will see this will feel real reminiscent. Yeah, it does have that feel. I, I was thinking, what is it reminding me of? And yeah, it is, it is those kind of one-on-one fighting games, but not in a cheesy Mortal Kombat-y kind of way. It's just, it's just <sighs> riffing me. on some of those. Uh, yeah, sorry, <laughs> but it, it, you know, the, 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 where where those games are riffing on more traditional themes, I think it's it's probably where it's coming from. I mean, it's a spectacular-looking film. That the combat is actually pretty good. And then it has both that kind of that one in one fighting stuff which is going on. As you say, the big fight that they're advertising is really a distraction. And then you have it re- do you know what it really reminded me of? It really reminded me of the Seven Samurai. Do you remember the fight in okay. that which is in the yeah. rain? It's like that, apart from half of the um half of the combatants are using metal umbrellas with bladed ribs um that feel real and again we're used to these we've seen you know there are films like the flying guillotines yeah where these weird weapons come out and and so you know it's not all bow staffs and nunchucks this is this is kind of interesting i assume it's a real thing um and they get they're quite deadly, but they and they're quite good as a defensive weapon as well. But they also get beaten up and bashed. And as the battle goes on, you see them getting more and more threadbare, and the metal all bashed up. And I love that kind of I don't know that that damage that's built into the whole thing. And this fighting, although it's quite stylized, I believe that people were literally dying. <laughs> I mean, obviously, not literally. That's a stupid word to use, Stephen. But I, 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 I believe this was this this was possible. Um, there's some other bits in it, like so. The king has a sister that he tries to broker peace, doesn't he? So he offers her as a wife to the main bad guy, who turns it down and says, "No, she can be my concubine." <laughs> Which drives her, makes her so angry that she joins these hundred convicts and basically goes to kill him herself. And there's a, I mean, spoilers, there's a, there's a mutually assured destruction moment, isn't there? But I didn't, I didn't think that fight was as, as, um, as grittily realistic as some of the others. So yeah, it's, it lives in this weird, it's kind of ultra stylized. There is an element of computer game about it, but I really believe that people were bleeding and getting hurt by it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the actual weapon itself, it is more of a defensive weapon that, because uh, all the, the killing that they do is from their sort of like hand crossbows that they have. Um, and the weapon itself, as I say, is purely a defensive one. You can ride it so you can go down, uh, down the archer's alley. Uh, we're not risk being hit. And there's, you have those great scenes where they're all like sliding down the hill, which is really, really cool. Um, or just like I said, when they're using the the umbrellas in, in combat, the way that this thing moves. Because up until this point, they've been using like traditional umbrellas. And you can see how it's being used as a defensive weapon against the staff. Because this is the whole thing is just basically about disarming uh, him of, of the saber. 
So you're seeing like how they use the movements to to counter it, and then obviously when we have the metal one, and it's purely from a visual sort of uh, aspect rather than like any sort of like um, that you know it's going to like uh, be a useful sort of weapon. It is it is purely a defensive weapon at best. Uh, but it visually it looks so interesting of the way that it moves around and it has a real nice sort of sound design to it and the also the fact that all the fighting sequences they're largely shot in slow motion so we see all those little dapples of water as they're moving around or when an opponent sort of like gets flung in the air and we really appreciate these these sort of movements it's not like we're watching like a Jet Li or a Donnie Yen where it's all about the quickness of the movement this is purely martial arts for aesthetic purposes that's the that's the guts of the film and then we have a uh sort of end sequence where although the battles happened um there's still the the politicking to come out the, the king has won the battle the shadow has done what he's asked but then our um uh well Basically, the shadow has been making his moves on Sun Lee's wife character <laughs> because he's a fit and much saner version of her husband. He's found out, and he just goes full. Um, he reminds me of. Um, so this is this is. Um, let's just get his name. This is this is um, the real Jingzhu. He goes full. I saw the devil. <laughs> and, it's, this has all been a huge plan on his part to basically dethrone the king. Um, but he's lost his sanity and his wife in the meantime. And he, yeah, th- there's a whole sort of court intrigue reminding me very much of the end of um, Curse of the Golden Flower in a way. That, that you know the, the guy that we're thinking of, he's a bit weird actually ends up winning the day um but he doesn't but he doesn't um yeah there's like, so people kill each other the 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 person alive at the end of the day might not be the people you think might be alive and it's um I, it just ended a little bit suddenly for me i don't know how you felt but this is yeah this sort of the code a bit didn't quite end quite I don't know. It just felt like there's. I wanted another five minutes. <laughs> I don't know. Did you feel? The yeah, same I thought the ending was a bit. He didn't didn't quite stick it with the the ending for myself. Um, I think because I, I was just so invested in the actual the idea of them building up to this big climactic duel and the way that that's whole set up. I mean, where he just like sells in on the platform they're going to be fighting, and he's got like the umbrella behind him, and he's got the rice hat on it so it's just so abstract. and then we have this whole uh sequence after the big you know battle for the city and it just felt like ah why are we tacking this on we didn't really need this it just um but there, as i said even prior to this with some fun scenes like when um the king's there trying to discipline people um to make he feels making a mockery of his corn he tries to shoot uh the guy with the bow and like falls really short so the guy just picks up the arrow and it's like here let me do it myself and he just stabs himself I thought that that was uh, good but no the ending for myself mm. just it just felt um, yeah it just didn't quite stick it for myself I mean I got it felt in keeping with the beginning of the film it's just that he had this wonderful build up to this 
like I say, almost seven samurai esque fighting moments that were really well executed and then they went back to the it's not even palace intrigue it's not even that because it, I, I don't think it's as clever as a palace intrigue type film so it was just a bit weird it just ended a bit quick but at, at the end of the day again it's all about who is this guy this guy i mean these are all based on real historical characters so he's he's, he's making maybe not something characters we know but i think you'll find a couple of these guys appear in like red cliff which is a film we're gonna to have to get to one day we're we watching the, uh, um, <laughs> the short one of the four hour director's cut though um i think we'll watch the short one but um yeah it, it and it's adding to that 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 whole mythology thing so i kind of got it it was just a weirdly balanced film and also because it's so black and white and gray it, it i just it doesn't quite capture us all the way through it's not you know you can watch something like schindler's list yeah and that's black and white and deliberately so but does a clever thing with color that actually pays off at the end and i don't think the color here paid off the color in his other films sort of paid off either in um you know in, in when we watched um because the golden flower it, it, it that that's just a more you know, there were some wonderful colory things, but it was it was a feast for the eyes. In Hero, you have those red v blue thing, you know, which is sort of telling you who people are. And in, like you say, in, in um, House of the Flying Daggers, it's 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 suggesting all the different elements, isn't it? But this this I didn't quite get, and it's quite a long time to spend with it. But however. What do you think of Chinese zither music, then? <laughs> it's, uh... What's that? Oh, Stylograph. That's what yeah. it feels like. It feels like, um... Ye olde Stylograph. Um, I, I don't... Yeah. I never got, um... The appeal of zither music. It's... Yeah. So, so... It's 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 a it's a thing used in the film. The music in this film is quite nice. And so I did forget about the last emperor. It was um, the fellow who died recently. Um, did the music? Uh, oh, crikey! Uh, or is she Sakamoto? Is that okay. his name? Or was that another guy? Um, but with David Byrne as well. So, of talking heads, fame did the music for it. But um, yeah, this this has got some quite nice music. But yeah, there's this there's this thing where. Um, uh, the real um, Jing Zhu and his wife are, are apparently great Chinese zither players but obviously the shadow can't play it at all so there is this bit where the king is suspecting something's up and sort of challenges them to play and the wife has to sort of go oh I promised I'd never play again until the city is uh, rescued and stuff like that and they nearly get caught out but then later on when the real Jingzu and the wife, he's basically exposed saying, I know that you're boning my shadow. Instead of having a proper argument, they have some kind of aggressive duel using Chinese zithers. <laughs> and I get it all as a metaphor, but it's a bit fucking weird. <laughs> but again, it might mean more to me if I was Chinese. I don't know. But you, you, but you really. I mean, like yeah, this I would certainly right? recommend it. I mean, as I said, I liked it enough to include in our top two hundred, and I think it definitely still remains in that position. It's not a perfect film by any stretch of the imagination, but as I said, I think that the 
the visual style of it and certainly the the action sequences are, are so fantastic that it really covers for a lot of the flaws of the film and i think certainly the intrigue in like you know that goes into maintaining the secret of his shadow the fact that he has to mimic wounds that he's uh, received and when the kings are like questioning it's all like oh this wound is so fresh and he's like i have to keep cutting myself because of the shame uh, so he has to like think on his feet to sort of like cover the fact that he's not the guy that that uh, the king assumes he is. So yeah, I think I think I I like I said I watched it one and a half times, <laughs> and but actually the second watch, not only did I stay awake for the second hour, but it was actually more rewarding. Um, and I do wonder if it's a film I might enjoy on further rewatches. It's maybe. I, right now, I think it's a bit shallow, okay. but but I but I think there's maybe more to it, and it just needs me to, you know, it's a bit more incumbent on me to spend the time with it and pull out of it the bits that 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 I maybe didn't enjoy as much. But I can think of yeah other films set in this time period that aren't so reliant on a visual gimmick that maybe I'd rather watch, like Redcliffe. Yeah. <laughs> Well, that brings us into tonight's uh, selection. Thank you, as always, for listening. If you haven't done already, please do hit the like and subscribe button um, wherever you happen to listen to us. Leave us a review, as it really does help raise the profile of the show. And you can follow us on Facebook and Twitter, sorry, Facebook and Instagram and Freds. So come say hi to us there. And uh, certainly let us know what films we should be looking for our, at for our 31 days of uh, Halloween. Love to hear your uh, input there. But Stephen, it is your turn to choose. And what would you like to look at next? Okay. I'm going to shout out to Facebook group member Marcus, who has pushed me down this route <laughs> a few weeks ago. Um, I'm going to choose another Thai film. I appreciate I chose a Thai film a couple of choices ago with Mary is Happy, Mary is Happy. But we can't really talk about modern Thai cinema without talking about Apachatpong Wurasathakal. Luckily, he likes to go by the name of Joe. So I think we're not going to struggle with this one next week. Um, so sort of one of the masters of ind Thai independent film or slow cinema. So that would be interesting. And um, I'm going to bring to the show his feature film, Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives. Fantastic. Um, so that's going to be a, an interesting watch, no doubt, and uh, lead us into the Halloween season. So, Indeed. But uh, until then, thank you again for listening. Uh, thank you to my co-host, Stephen. Pleasure and as always. we'll be back next time to talk about Uncle Boonmi, who can recall his past lives. But until then, good night. Hey,
This podcast is a proud member of the Lamb Podcasting Network. Find the network at largeassmovieblogs.com.